You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 8, it's probably appropriate that we are discussing this portion of Genesis uh, with all the rain that we've been experiencing. Um, It seems to make my study come to life as we read and study about God's promises to to assure us that this will end at some point. Um, seems like it's been raining for weeks, and uh, even at McDonald's this morning when I was studying, there were people making the typical jokes, I'm going to need an ark to get out of here, you know, it's like, ha <laughs> um, But yeah, I mean, just, just unbelievable amounts of rain that we've experienced recently, and, and not that we necessarily are fearful that, that we would experience a, a flood of the magnitude that we've been reading about, it's nice to know. And the reason that we don't fear that is because we do have the assurance in Scripture, as we'll see more in depth today, that um, while the rains continued to flow after Noah and his family exited the ark, the assurance was that the sun would come out again um, and that it would not wreak the same type of havoc. Um, and so I just, just neat how God's kind of orchestrated it for us to experience uh, on a small scale uh, the type of rain that we're uh, reading about in Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 8, we're covering a a large chunk of Scripture today, and so I want to read through it uh, because we're going to jump around in this passage, but I feel like it's important to set the tone by reading it in context so that as we jump around, we know uh, where we're pulling different uh, verses from. So let's begin looking at Genesis 8 verse 1. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground 
because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the boat is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. We've spent several weeks now talking about the story of Noah, and uh, we've, we've discussed specifically how different components of the story point to greater things in the future. So we saw that as great as a man Noah is, uh, as, as righteous and faithful and obedient as he was, we ultimately, we ultimately landed on the fact that he's only counted righteous because of God's grace in his life, that ultimately his obedience pales in comparison to what would be necessary for salvation. And so his obedience points to a greater obedience, that Noah is saved on the account of faith, just like Abraham was, uh, because Jesus comes to be faithful for us, that Jesus comes to be righteous for us. And so even though Noah is labeled as righteous, the picture there is he's counted righteous, the original language would say, because of faith. Because of his faith in God, he's considered righteous, not because of his obedience, but because of Jesus' obedience. Uh, we, we looked at the ark. And so God, God has Noah construct an ark for safety for his family, but it ultimately points to a greater ark, that being Jesus. So in the New Testament, when we're saved, it talks in language of us being in Christ. Peter references our baptism or our salvation being a picture of how we're carried through the judgment waters. And so in the same way, Noah and his family are spared from God's judgment because they're in the ark. The assurance that Peter gives us in his letters is that we too are spared from God's judgment because we are in Christ. Um, and so we see that there are, are greater pictures that the story of Noah point us to. Ultimately, we saw last week that there's a greater judgment that's coming. So even though uh, the judgment of the flood was great and devastating, it points to a greater judgment that's coming. Uh, that when Jesus returns... 
Uh, he will rescue uh, his people once again. He will judge the wicked. Uh, but ultimately, we won't have what we're going to see happens after the flood and after the ark, that mankind goes back to his sinful ways. That when Jesus comes with that greater judgment, he will purge the earth completely of sin and death. And he will usher us into an eternity that no longer sees those things ever again. Um, and so it's a greater judgment that's coming. But we did see last week that God's judgment with the flood was proper. That man has an evil intent. Uh, violence, uh, the Bible describes it as. We also saw God's intentional planning of the judgment. And so to shift us from thinking in any way that God is an abusive God with a hot temper, what we see is a God who planned his judgment. And we related it to the fact of how important it is as parents that we plan our punishment towards our kids as well. That our kids understand that our judgment, our punishment towards them is thought out, that it's not overreactive, that we don't just allow our emotions to drive our punishment of our kids. That instead it's so important to have conversations with our children, to lay out the discipline that needs to be uh, applied to their life. Uh, and also the limitations that we're placing. And so I shared with you that when we punish AJ, that we communicate to him the extent of the punishment that's coming. If we're going to spank him, we tell him how many times we're going to spank him. So that he understands this is not because mommy and daddy are just really angry right now and our emotions are getting the best of us. That we're, we're instructing him about the punishment and we're also limiting the punishment. In the same way that God communicates the rain is coming, it will last this amount of time and then it will stop. So there's no hesitation by Noah as to whether this will ever end. So as they sit in the ark and they hear the rains coming down, they know that this will eventually end, that God has communicated an end to his punishment. We also saw last week that it was an extensive judgment, that God flooded the earth. And one day, too, when he returns, his return will affect the entire earth, that no one will be able to hide from the glorious return of Jesus Christ. So we come now to this last section of Noah uh, and we discuss the covenant that God makes with Noah, but ultimately we'll see today as well that the covenant that God makes with Noah points to a greater covenant in the New Testament that we experience today as the church. And so with this big section of scripture, what I, what I felt like would be best and most memorable for us is to give you uh, five things that we need to remember from this section, things that we need to learn ourselves but then also five things that we need to be faithful to teach others, whether it's our own children, whether it's those that God allows us to disciple, that these are five important things that flow out of this passage that are worth remembering for us and worth passing on to others. Kind of flows with the theme that we've been talking about, uh, our responsibility to pass on a heritage to, to, to those underneath us. Um, as we see, Noah's descendants faithfully passed on a heritage to him so that when the time came, he responded faithfully to God and his instruction that we too want to be faithful to pass on those things to our uh, physical children as, also, as well as our spiritual children. So number one in your notes this morning, God remembers his people. God remembers his people. In Genesis 8, 1, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. It's probably important to note here at the beginning that God puts great value not just on Noah and his family, but also the animals in this story, right? So a lot of times we want to steer clear of overvaluing animals, um, that we don't want to ever in any way put them on the same level as human beings and their value. One's created in God's image, the other is not. But that shouldn't cause us to go so far to the extreme to say that God does not care about his creation. 
Jesus uses time and time again references to the fact that he cares about uh, birds. He cares about animals. And because of that, it, it shows that he cares even greater for man, for his children. And so we're going to see through this that, that God values uh, animal life not anywhere near like he values human life, but he doesn't completely disregard it. Um, and so it says that God remembered not just Noah and his family, but also the animals that were upon the ark. I think it's important to note that as you kind of put together all the, the days and the dates that are mentioned in this section, it comes out to where Noah and his family spend a little over a year on the ark. A little over a year. And we have no indication that there was any communication from God to Noah and his family during that time. That's a long time. It's a long time to be confined to a location. You know what you've been told about what the future looks like, that this will end, that the waters will go away, that you're going to come off the ark. But you're basing that off of what God told your dad, and maybe not directly to you. And even as Noah, the dad, he's thinking, I haven't heard from God in, in almost a year. And I'm sure, because we want to just kind of blow through this story, but I think it's good to just kind of stop and pause and think for a second. What were, what were possibly some of the emotions that Noah and his family were feeling? Um, as they go this stretch of time, they're confined to the ark. They're wondering about their future. I'm sure just like we struggle with doubt and we struggle with times where our faith uh, wanders a little bit. I'm sure there were times in the ark where there were some discussions as to where's God at in all this? What's going on? And so it's significant that Moses, as the author of this book, points out that God remembers Noah and his family. We're going to see that Noah obviously responds very quickly to God's instruction. And so it's a testimony to the fact that uh, that Noah continued to be faithful, even in the midst of silence. Um, it's an encouragement to us that when we go through dry spells in our own spiritual life, where maybe we feel like we're not hearing from God, or where we feel like we're in a dry season of our life where God doesn't seem to be actively working and actively doing things in our life, that he's still very present. Uh, the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. It's a reminder to us that even when everything seems to be going not our way, that we're called to rejoice in the Lord, knowing that he is still active, that he still has plans, that he's still working in our midst, even when it feels like a dry spell, even when it feels like that our, our spiritual walk has, has leveled out and plateaued, even when it feels like that we're going to God's word faithfully, but it's dry and we don't feel like we're learning, we're not connecting that even in the midst of those times, as Noah felt a very dry spell, it's wet on the outside, dry on the inside, he's wondering, where is God in the midst of this potentially? And the encouragement that rings true in Romans chapter or Genesis chapter 8 is that God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. I think it's important to note that this word remember in the Hebrew language does not carry the idea of God forgetting something and then coming back to it, you know, misplacing it and having to be reminded of it. Instead, it carries the idea of acting on behalf of someone based on a previous promise. 
So it's important to note that we're not saying that God forgot about Noah and then, oh, I forgot, I flooded the earth and there's Noah and his family still floating. I need to come back and do something. The idea instead is, is that God began to move actively based on a previous promise. And you'll remember in chapter 6 we said that as Noah got the instructions about building the ark, that the instruction also contained the idea that when this is over, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That God promised Noah before the floods ever came, build an ark, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so God remembers Noah and he moves and acts in the life of Noah based on a previous promise. And so he remembers his people. He moves and acts once again in Noah's life where he has seemingly from Noah's point of view been absent. God remembers his people. It, it, it reminded me as well that we're called, we're called to call upon God at times to remember us, that, that that's an appropriate response for us as his children. So understanding the concept that God remembers us by moving and acting in our life once again, at times God wants the call to come from us for him to remember us. We see patterns of this in scripture where God's people call upon God and say, God, remember me. In Judges chapter 16, Judges chapter 16, verse 28. Have we gotten to this passage with the youth in discussing Judges? Have we gotten to Judges 16 yet? Okay, so Judges 16, 28. This is a great passage for uh, the guys in our youth class that are reading through Judges. In Judges 16, 28, after Samson has kind of hit rock bottom, made poor choices and poor decisions, and um, it's led to him completely being defeated in the eyes of man, it says in verse 28, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. One of God's people calling out to God for God to remember him. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Verse 11, and she vowed a vow, talking about Hannah, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is an appeal from Hannah, who is grieving over the fact that she has such innate desires for a child. And it's not a, a, a request that, that should just be put to the back burner. She comes to God and prays for a kid. And she prays and cries out and says, God, remember me, your servant, and bless me with a child. One of God's people, again, calling out for God to remember them. And then in Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 42 As the thief hangs on the cross next to Jesus and begins to realize who Jesus is, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is an appropriate response, I believe, from God's people. Because Scripture communicates God as remembering his people. Uh, In Genesis 19, as we'll see uh, in a few weeks as we continue to move forward through Genesis, in Genesis 19, Verse 29, so it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. In Exodus chapter 2, it talks about God remembering his people in Egypt and rescuing them out of their slavery. 
So scripture, scripture communicates this. Again, it's not that God has forgotten you or forgotten me or forgotten any of his people, but it's a, an intentional acting by God where he has been maybe passively sitting back waiting for a specific time to move and act. So God has been very active in Noah's life, but very passive in the sense that Noah hasn't heard from him. There hasn't been any change in Noah's circumstances. He's been floating in an ark for a year. And it may be that Noah even cried out during that time, God, remember us. But what we are assured is that God did remember Noah and his family, and he did act. And so it's an encouragement to us, and I think it's worth mentioning, that at times when we go through dry spells in our life, when, when there are times when we feel like we haven't heard from God and we haven't seen God actively moving in our life, that we are, we are, we are afforded the opportunity to call upon him. God, remember me. Remember I'm your servant. Move once again in my life. Be active in my life. It's an appropriate response, I believe, from God's people. Uh, Moses says that God remembers Noah and his family and begins to move and act. God remembers by removing the water. It says, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. God remembers by removing the water. You know, we could really get bogged down here in trying to figure out where all the water came from and where it all went. Um, There's a lot of discussion, a lot of articles, a lot of books that have been written. Um, I think it's it's just important to note that the coming of the floodwaters and the leaving of the floodwaters, while there were some natural causes for it, I think we have to admit that there was some miraculous element to it as well. Uh, So if we're admitting that God intervened specifically and brought the floods that it wasn't just a natural thing that happened right so god intervenes and steps in and and the floods come so there was a miraculous element to it at that point when i'm having to admit that the miraculous stepped in and did something it it makes me less uh i'm less concerned with trying to explain it uh, from a naturalistic standpoint so i'm admitting that the miraculous had to step in to bring this flood I'm okay with admitting that the miraculous had to step in and redistribute these floodwaters uh, so that the dry land could reappear. Um, and it's very possible that the topography of the earth was drastically different as the waters were breaking up from the ground. Uh, there may have been mountain ranges and, and valleys and, and sea basins that were different that allowed the waters to once again fill up those areas and recede from the dry land. A lot of speculation as to where the water could have gone. For the water to flood the earth and it be that high, water typically tries to find a level playing field. So as it levels out, where does it all go? It can't just evaporate. And so uh, trusting that some way God miraculously allows the waters to recede so that the dry land once again reappears. It's important to note, too, that God made a wind blow over the earth. The wordage there is the same wordage being used in Genesis 1 where it says that God's spirit hovered over the waters. So we're once again being drawn back to that original creation where the water is the, the water is covering the earth and God's spirit or God's wind begins to blow and begins to move and and waters begin to recede and dry land begins to pop up. We see it in Genesis one. We see it again in Genesis chapter eight. We see that God's spirit uh, in the form of wind works in, in, in other ways miraculously as well. Uh in the book of Exodus, it's attributed to the locusts coming in the plague that God blows and the wind comes and, and the locusts both come into Egypt and lead Egypt, leave Egypt. There's also the wind that blows and separates the Red Sea and dries the land out so that his people can walk there as well. So 
Uh, once again, we see God's power and majesty um, as he creates dry land for Noah and his family. Uh, and then I think it's important to note, too, that, God, that Noah waits patiently for God to instruct him to leave the ark. Uh, he doesn't rely on his own understanding. He acts in obedience to what is known. Um, you, you'll, you'll see that, as we, as we read through it, that, that Noah proactively starts to try to explore to see if there is dry land out there, right? So he's trying to peek out the window. He's trying to send birds out. What's the terrain look like? And even when he starts to get encouraging signs, the dove finally doesn't even come back. You don't see Noah just blow the door open and say, okay, we're moving on this. Like dry land, we've been in here long enough. You see him continually, patiently wait for God's leading. Now, there's times in our life where we have to move because it's a a situation where we're not going to get God directly telling us to do something, right? God directly tells us what to do in his word. But you have to remember, God directly told Noah to go into the ark, right? He didn't just just decide, hey, this might be a good idea for me and my family. We're going to make this decision. This was direct revelation from God to go into the ark. So Noah very specifically waits until he gets direct revelation to leave the ark. And it's an important reminder to us, even though I don't think that we necessarily get direct revelation from God to do things and not do things, it is an important reminder to us that timing Timing is oftentimes just as important as what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, that oftentimes we need to wait on God's leading in our life for the timing of certain things. Noah's supposed to get out of the ark, but he's supposed to get out of the ark at a certain time uh, when it's safe. And it may be even that from a visual standpoint, everything looks safe. But you know as well as I do that when there's been a lot of rain, the, the grounds are squishy, right? They're squishy. And, and the ground would have been extremely squishy, even though it looks fine you step out and and it could have been devastating for big elephants to be walking out and dinosaurs to be walking out um you got quicksand basically right outside your ark and so so god says not time yet it's not time yet um but i do think and kind of the last point i want to make under this with god remembering his people is that god remembers by providing signs of encouragement so all this this movement with the birds and stuff i believe it's god encouraging noah remember he hasn't heard from god but God is communicating encouragement through these signs. You know, the, the, the dove comes back. The dove comes back with, uh, with, with signs of life. And that would have been an encouragement to Noah that, that what we're doing is right. That God hasn't forgotten us. God is still active and God is still moving. And it would have been a sign of encouragement. Um, it, it's a sign that God hasn't forgotten and that God has remembered. That God is still working for their good. Noah's spirits would have been lifted as the dove returns, showing signs of life. You'll also note that the dove with the, with the olive branch is a sign of peace today, right? Like it's a universal sign of peace for doves and, and the olive branch to be combined together. This is God communicating peace to Noah, that the judgment is over and that the restoration has begun. That's where this sign comes from. It's God's peace sign to Noah. That yes, you've heard the thunder, you've heard the rains coming, and now you've heard that they've stopped. And, and here's a sign that restoration has begun. The dove returns with a sign of life. I think there's at times as well, as we, as we talk about these dry spells, there's times I think today where God communicates encouraging signs to us as well. These aren't, and I don't want you to think that I'm talking about some, some crazy direct revelation type stuff, but I think that God at times will give us small uh, personal, meaningful ways to reassure us that he's in our midst, uh, that, that he is working and guiding in our life. One example in my life, there was a time where um, I had a big decision to make about whether I was going to sacrifice part of my summer 
uh, to go to Romania. It was a huge financial expense. Um, it, it was really going to take some adjustment on what I had planned to do for the summer. Was really torn as to whether I should go or not. Just really just had no idea about what God was leading me to do. Didn't know whether I was supposed to be here for the entire summer or, for, or to be there. And I remember just pouring over it in my dorm room, just praying and, and just asking God that, that I wanted to do, I wanted to spend my summer for his glory, whatever that looked like, and that I was just really torn as to whether this was the right decision or, or whether staying uh, in the States was the right decision. I remember going for a walk um, around campus. I remember bumping into the one girl that I knew out of all the students at Liberty that had also spent time in Romania. We ended up having a conversation, and for me, that was just assurance that this is what I'm going to do this summer. It just reaffirmed everything that I was thinking about Romania. Do I believe that God magically ordained that she left her dorm and came out and talked with me? I don't know. What I do know is that I needed something for assurance purposes as to what I should do at the time. I know I was praying for it. I know that I met and, 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 and saw her on that walk, had a great conversation with her, and, you know, left thinking and feeling, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I think that, that that's okay to say that at times as we're praying and trying to do the right thing, we're not getting direct revelation from God. We've got his word. But there's times when, when we really need some extra guidance, not really sure what to do. We're counting on the Holy Spirit to lead us. I believe we walk in the Spirit in response to his word. But I don't think that we have to be too rigid to say that, that God can't give us some of that type of stuff to help guide us and help lead us. And, and this is what happens for Noah. Noah has a bird that shows up with an with a, with a, uh, olive branch in it. And I believe it would have been so assuring to Noah to get this, uh, for this bird to come back and to reassure him that God is working in Noah's midst. Secondly, in your notes, we are to remember God. So, so the text tells us that God remembers Noah, but we too are to remember God. What you find as Noah kind of follows through with his best notion as to how to figure out if there's dry land or not, he waits until God instructs him to leave. Verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. What gets missed in all the movies and all the renditions of Noah and his ark is that, if you, if you ever pay attention, everything looks the same when he gets on the ark and when he gets off, right? Like, you can't really, with that, and maybe they can now with the technology, you can't really recreate what the earth probably looked like at that time versus what it looked like when they stepped off the ark. But I imagine, based on the description of what happened, that it looked drastically different. Drastically different. The most recent movie I watched, again, it was desert when they got on the ark. It was desert when they got off. Like, no change, just no more people here. I think it looked drastically different. Drastically different. And I think as Noah and his family exit, I think the, the horror and the wreckage of what they see is, is probably, uh, is probably uh, just, just consuming them. And I think what transpires as they exit the ark is so important. I think it's so important because what you see is immediately, immediately Noah starts making provision to worship God. Immediately he starts making provision. What happens a lot of times for us is that we weather a storm, we weather a storm, we come out of the storm, and we forget to be thankful to God for what he's just brought us through. 
right? You don't have Noah and his family exiting the ark and say, okay, everybody run around. It's recess time. You've been cooped up in here. Everybody go spend some time what you want to do, and we'll reconvene in a little bit. I mean, it's, it seems to be immediate. He comes off the ark, and immediately there's expression of thanksgiving to what God has done. He responds in worship to God's good work. In, um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say I have no pleasure in them. It's a reminder to us that we're to remember God. We're to remember God. God remembers us, but we too, because we are prone to forget. So God doesn't forget. So the word is different for us. We do need to be called to remember God because we are prone to forget him. We, we get absent-minded uh, in the same way that sometimes we feel like God's not doing things in our life. Uh, a lot of times we just forget to be involved with what God's doing. We just kind of check out. We're doing our own thing. And, and Scripture reminds us to be, to be remembering of what God has done and, and God's role in your life. And he is our creator and he is our supreme treasure. And he is the king of the universe. The call is for us to remember God. And Noah sets a great example for that. Noah was faithful to respond in obedience after the storm because he was faithful to obey in the midst of the storm. I put in my notes, had Noah failed to capitalize on, faith, on the faith growth opportunity in the ark, he would have failed to properly thank God. If Noah and his family had spent the entire time grumbling and complaining about their circumstances, which we're prone to do when we go through a, a difficult situation, we're prone to doubt and to get frustrated and to grumble and complain. And when we do come out of it, that's why we're not prone to thank God, because we haven't been leaning on him the entire time. I think Noah and his family are probably constantly gathering together and worshiping in the ark. And so when they come off the ark, it's the natural response. Man, we've been leaning on God this whole time. It's now time to acknowledge that he's brought us through this. And so they allowed that trial to be a faith growth opportunity. And so when they come through the trial, the appropriate response is to give thanksgiving to God for his salvation. Noah approaches God in the proper way in faith. He comes to him through sacrifice, the Bible tells us. and says back in Genesis 8, after they exit the ark, and this is why he took extra uh, of the clean animals with him. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah, Noah approaches God the only way that he knows how to. You know, it's different for us in the New Testament. We don't bring sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. But in the same way that Noah felt he could confidently approach God through sacrifice, we too, Scripture tells us, can confidently approach God because of Jesus' sacrifice. It says in Hebrews eleven six, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we approach God in the same way today. We approach him through sacrifice, but it's through Jesus' sacrifice. And we approach confidently, knowing that God rewards those who seek him. And I believe Noah approaches God with the same mindset that um, through faith, God too will respond to him. And so Noah offers this sacrifice with his family. Noah gives proper thanks and leads his family in worship during this time. This is in contrast to what you find in Luke 17. Remember when Jesus shows up to heal the lepers, right? The lepers have probably been sitting outside the city grumbling and complaining about their, their disease. Woe is me. Why did I get this? 
I don't deserve this. Some of the typical responses that we might have when we're going through a difficult situation. Why me? Why now? Jesus shows up, miraculously cures them from their death sentence, right? I mean, they've been cast off. He is there done with. Jesus saves them physically, and you see them run off, and they don't come back, and you see the one that returns and thinks. This is, this, is, this is the appropriate response. Noah, his family, gathering around to worship God. You've just carried our family through a major storm. It's time to acknowledge you for carrying us through that. That's what you see Noah leading his family to do. It's an it's a, it's a exhortation to our, our men in our church to lead our families in the same type of response. I tend to venture to think that Noah's offering this sacrifice as both a, a matter of thanks and probably a matter of repentance as well. I don't know about you, but if I was cooped up on an ark with uh, people that I'm closest to, I'm sure at some point my flesh would get the best of me. And I'm sure there was a lot of sinful things that happened on the ark in the midst of their hanging out with each other and, and the discussions that they're having as they're trying to tend to the animals. I'm sure there was frustration, right? Knowing his family aren't perfect people, they get on, they've got evil intent in their hearts too, Right. And so as they're living cooped up together for a year plus, I'm sure Noah said, let's get off and let's uh, let's make some things right, because that was a long year. Right. Like there's a lot of things that we need to be repenting of a lot of uh, a lot of family conflict potentially that happened. Um, and, and so Noah offers these things. It may have even been that as Noah and his family are on the ark and they're hearing potentially the cries of those that are perishing around them. I'm sure Noah, as a righteous man, probably as a humble man, begins to question, why am I in here? Why in the world does God think that I should be spared from this? Because that, that's typically true when you have someone who's spiritual, who's humble, who's, who's approaching the holiness of God. The closer we get to God's holiness, the more we are exposed to our own sin. I imagine Noah getting off and thinking, why? Why are we still here? Because we are the chief of sinners. And I'm sure this is an expression of thanksgiving, but also an expression of repentance. A sin sacrifice, potentially, where he's acknowledging we shouldn't be here. It's only by God's grace that we are. But but we certainly have not earned this right. We've certainly not earned the right to be standing here as a family. We know the offering is accepted. It's an offering that's accepted by God. It's a temporary acceptance. We know that Genesis, or Romans 3 tells us that in God's forbearance, he passed over the sins in the Old Testament. But it says in 21 of chapter 8, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. God responds to this sacrifice. He accepts it. We see this language of pleasing aroma and the acceptance of God pop up in Leviticus 1.9 and Leviticus 3.16. If you want to look those up later. Leviticus 1.9, Leviticus 3.16. These are other uh, situations where God communicates that sacrifices that are pleasing to him are, are received in the same way that a sweet-smelling aroma would be received by an individual. It's the language used about Jesus' sacrifice in Ephesians 5, too. That Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice, he is a pleasing, sweet aroma to his Father. And so it's important to connect that language with what happens here with Noah and his sacrifice. In the New Testament, the greater sacrifice, Jesus, he also is received as that sweet-smelling aroma, guaranteeing that God has accepted that sacrifice. So God remembers his people. That's important for us because there's times when maybe we feel like God has forgotten us, but God does remember, and he acts on previous promises. We're to remember God because we are prone to forget. 
And so we're challenged to remember God in the midst of dry spells as well as in the midst of, of mountaintop experiences where we just feel like we're on a spiritual high that God is, is moving in our life and we're studying and we're learning and, and we're joyful and encouraged that we're to remember our creator in both of those type of times. And then number three, the third point that we kind of walk away from this, from this passage, the post-flood world functions according to God's sovereign control. The post-flood world functions according to God's sovereign control. So Noah and his family exit. They see the whore potentially around them. I don't know what all was left. I don't know that if God's waters just really cleaned up everything and there was no sign of, of, of the dead life that occurred because of the flood, there may have been signs of that. What I do believe is that it looked really different. Um, it looked really different because life ends up being different when they get off the ark. Life ends up being different. But what God communicates from what seems to be day one off the ark is that this new world is still very much under my control. That it still submits to my sovereign control because this is what God says. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The renewed world they experienced was most likely very different. The overall survival was going to be now harder, but it's still under God's rule. How do we know that the world was different, or at least life was different? Life expectancy decreases. People stop living as long as they were before the flood. So there's some type of change to the environment, to the conditions uh, that starts to lead to man not living as long as he previously did. We also see that animals start to become extinct, right? Whether dinosaurs were extinct before the flood or after the flood, most likely after the flood due to the conditions and the environment changes. Um, we see animals that, that we can see in the, in the fossil record that are no longer here that have died out, even animals today that are, that are on the verge of extinction, not necessarily due to the environment change, but due to man's behavior, man's actions. Life has become harder for both man and animal after the flood. We also note that the human-animal relationship is altered. In Genesis chapter 9, instead of man having dominion, the language shifts a little bit, and now there's fear and dread from the animals. This is really inconvenient when you're trying to hunt for your food, that they're, they're, they're scared of you. It'd be more convenient if they weren't scared of you and the deer would just walk out and you could take care of your business and take your meat home to your family. I see this constantly when I try to fish, when I try to hunt, when I'm out in nature. Animals flee from me. Why? Because I like to eat them. And, and, and God says it's okay to eat them, right? There, there's a change in the diet after the flood as well. Why? We're not told exactly. It may be that the plant nutrition that was needed, uh, the plant nutrition that was provided before the flood now needs to be supplemented by animal sources. Um, we're not told exactly why there's a shift now in the diet, but it echoes what happens in Genesis when God calls Adam and Eve as the representatives for the human race, gives them instruction and says, you can eat any of the plants. There's never any communication about eating any of the animals. Now, as Noah and his family stand before him, as the representatives of the human race, it's you can eat plants and you can eat the animals. Um, and so life is different. Life is altered. The human-animal uh, relationship is altered. But it's important to note that God assures 
assures Noah and his family that the earth will remain seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night. They shall not cease. The things that we need most, the things that sustain our life, and we talked more extensively in this when we talked about creation and why the, the celestial bodies are so important. The assurances is that life will continue. So when we watch sci-fi movies about comets and asteroids hitting our earth and blacking out the sun and, and going into an ice age, it's not true. It's not accurate. It's not something that we fear as God's people. Because the assurance is, is that seed time and harvest will continue to happen. The seasons will continue to happen. Day and night will continue to happen until Jesus comes back. The conditions of this covenant is that it will last as long as the earth lasts. But we know in the future that Jesus comes to renew this earth completely. And so this guarantee lasts until Jesus returns. Number four, fourth thing that we kind of take away from this. So we re- God remembers us. We remember God The post-flood world, as different as it is for Noah's family, it's all that we've ever known, but as different as it was for that family, it's still under God's control. And then number four, we value life as God's image. Chapter 9, as we move into this section, the, the overall theme here seems to be human life and the value placed upon human life. We're going to find that Noah's family is called to expand it, to sustain it, to protect it, because human life is created in God's image. We value life as God's image. First of all, we embrace our role to expand life further. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and feel and fill feel and fill the earth. That that was the command given to, to Noah and his family, it was the same command given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Expand life to the ends of the earth. And as we prayed this morning, it's not just about producing children. It's about producing children that are submitted to God's glory because there's a particular type of life that we're to extend to the ends of the earth. It's life that gives gives glory to God. And so Noah and his family are called to expand life because life is valuable. Life is to be created and procreated. And it's to be done so for God's glory. This is a sign of obedience for God's people in Exodus. When God's people are in ex or when God's people are in Egypt, the story found in the book of Exodus, it says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is a response and a sign of obedience. Now, I want you to, to think through this because I think, in some sense, this has some bearing on, on our church and has, as we try to expand. Because think about it, as Noah and his family are called to be fruitful and multiply and extend, what it necessarily demands is that they spread out and they at times move away from each other, which at times would mean relationships change for the sake of the good of life being expanded. Now we're going to see that they don't do this, right? Everybody stays together. I don't want to leave. I don't want to move. I don't want to change. And let's build something here. Let's build a big building here so we can all stay together. And let's build it to God. Let's see if we can reach God. And they don't move out. 
And the command is that we're supposed to spread out, that we're supposed to expand life and spread God's glory. And that has big ramifications for us because as a church, we want to do that, right? Like we want to expand. We want to see people from our church move overseas. We want to see people from our church move to a different city locally, plant another church. You know, as I was even thinking through and praying through this, the reality is is that with our leadership even, with, with Adam McLeod and Tyson and Ben and Chris and Melissa, that long term, our, our whole leadership team won't be here. Right? Like, like what we're trying to do necessitates that some of us won't be here in five years. And that's tough for me to reconcile because the people that I just mentioned are some of the people that I'm closest to in this church. But in order for us to expand, in order for us to grow, it means sometimes having to let go of relationships for the sake of God's glory going out. And I just want us to keep that in mind because some of us aren't going to be here as well. Right? Some of us aren't going to be here. You're going to, you're going to leave. And you're going to go overseas to Uganda. Or you're going to move to Noonan or, or, or wherever we end up planting another church. And so it demands flexibility on our part. Demands flexibility on our part. And we're asking for flexibility even right now as we're talking about our C groups and our accountability groups, right? Um, and, and we've had good response from people who are saying, hey, I'd like to see you change this, but, you know, I want to be flexible too. And that's what we need. We need flexibility because we want to expand. And it necessitates at times that we have to step out and do some things that are tough. You know, it's going to be hard when I say goodbye to Chris. You know, I love Chris and we're friends and it's going to be hard because it's right now it's he's coming back after the summer. You know, like I'll see him. He'll be gone. I'll be gone for vacation. He'll come back. There's coming a time when when I'll say goodbye to Chris for, for an indefinite period of time. And maybe others from our leadership team that I say goodbye to for an indefinite period of time. And that's going to be hard on me. And so I know that it's difficult as we try to do what we're talking about doing. But it's also something that we're commanded to do, to expand life, to grow, and to, to see God's glory increase through what we're trying to do here as a church, what Noah and his family were trying to do as a family. So we embrace our role to expand life. Secondly, we embrace our responsibility to value life around us, to value life around us. Uh, in, in case it's been forgotten, God wants to remind Noah and his family of the value of human life. Now, you remember pre-flood, the culture is characterized by violence, right? So they're a violent society, which means the value of human life was not being upheld. And so God wants to, in the midst of renewing everything, hey, let's, let's remind you of the value of human life. He says, the fear of you, the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon every creeping, everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Talks about the food part. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its uh, life that is its blood, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We embrace our responsibility to value life around us. And this just isn't a command to not kill each other. I believe this has such a big impact on how we treat others. And I see this all the time in our middle school. It's kids that don't understand that the kids that they go to school with are created in the image of God. And so while they are not killing each other, they are tearing each other down constantly. The language that they use, the gossip, the slander, the belittling, the bullying, 
It's all a sign that those kids are not embracing, if it's being taught at home, they're not embracing the teaching that the other people around them have value because they're created in God's image. And it's an important reminder to us as parents that we teach our kids the value of those that they interact with. It's not just about not killing each other. It's about placing extreme value on each other because we're created in the image of God. And God wants to communicate the value of human life here as he talks with Noah and his family. The death penalty is laid out here uh, for the first time in Scripture. Uh, It's laid out to restrain man's passions. So again, coming out of the flood, pre-flood, violence. God says to help deter some of the violence, we're going to communicate now. Uh, in, in the form of human government, this is a step in the form of human government, that to take a life demands a life. And this move towards human government remo- removes man's excuse that violence arises because there's no punishment for it. See, it's almost as though God anticipates, and maybe the excuses were being thrown around during the pre-flood time, that the reason we're in this state is because Cain killed Abel and God let him off the hook. And then Lamech starts killing people and nothing seems to happen to him. It may be that nobody felt like they could punish the violence. And so God, in order to remove any excuses being directed his way, says, okay, you're now permitted to punish this type of crime. Now, what we see is that it doesn't really stop it, right? It deters it, I believe. I believe it helps restrain some of the human passion and the evil intent. But ultimately, rules and laws do not create morality in a society we see this very soon as as uh mankind spreads and mankind begins to create evil once again the post-flood cure for us as god's people is to produce societal change through the changed hearts exposed to the gospel and i I posted something on on facebook about this the other day this is this is to be our perspective that that having a bible-believing president who who begins to shape our country with with biblically based laws does not create a moral society it it deters it potentially more so than we're deterring it right now but ultimately moses couldn't create change with his ten commandments and his ten commandments coming from god are far better than any bible believing president could come up with that's that's the fault of our hearts and why we need the new covenant that we're going to talk about here at the end the new covenant changes our hearts so the only hope for our society the only hope for our country is not is not to change rulers, it's to change hearts. And so as we, and some of you are prone to, to, to the political involvement, and that's great, we need, we need that. But ultimately it comes back to, even with the institution of human government here, that it does not stop sin from progressing. But the only thing that stops sin is changed hearts. Hearts that are renewed through the gospel. Martin Luther says that God establishes government and gives it the sword to hold wantonness in check, lest violence and other sins proceed without limit. So God institutes these commands, institutes these rules as a means of deterring the sin, but ultimately it cannot stop the sin. The value of human life, something that our society has forgotten. According to the notes that I looked at, 1.2 million Americans have been killed in our nine major wars. 1.2 million Americans, 1.6 million babies are killed per year through abortion. That's, That's where we stand as a society in regards to our value on human life. 
It's why we desire as a church to be such a part of the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Noonan, the Coweta Pregnancy Services, because we want to value life. And so this ties in the things that we have coming up with their fundraiser. This ties into what flows out of this passage right here, that there's value for human life and we want to fight for human life. And we have the opportunity to participate in that process of fighting for human life because God says it has value because God has created life in his image. The last point here, number five, God makes and keeps promises. God makes and keeps promises. So God remembers his people. We're to remember God just like Noah did. The post-flood world, as, as wrecked as it was, still falls under God's control. The value of God's, uh, or of the value of life, God's image is, is re, uh, re-dictated to, to God's people after the flood. We have a role to play in that. We want to expand life. And then lastly, the encouragement to us is that God makes and keeps promises. There's no bargaining ploy here by Noah with this covenant. It's not that Noah gets off the ark and says, okay, God, what do we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? God, if we do this, can we get assurance from you that you won't do this again? There's no bargaining ploy from Noah because Noah has no grounds to bargain with God about. This is all initiated by God. Everything that gets communicated here in this covenant is initiated by God because of his grace. He's not indebted to man. He doesn't owe this to Noah and his family. This is all based on his good pleasure. So briefly, God's covenant with Noah. He covenants to never destroy the earth with water again. He says there's going to be no further cursing of the ground. No interruption to the cycle of nature. He guarantees the necessities of life will continue. The earth will survive until the final judgment. That assurance is given to mankind. Noah and his family walk off. Wow, this earth is really different. Can we survive here? Yes. Yes, you can, Noah, because I'm going to ensure that everything stays the same moving forward. There will be no break from the normal patterns here. Seed time and harvest, day and night, summer and winter, everything will continue to happen until Jesus comes back. That's a promise and assurance given to Noah and his family. God makes this covenant with a sign of peace. He puts the bow in the clouds as a sign of peace after a time of war. God has been at war with mankind. He's brought judgment. And what we have is a covenant, a, 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 a peace offering, a, a re- restoration here that takes place. In Psalm chapter... 103, one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not, talking about God, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. This is God extending peace to Noah, reminding him that he will not always chide, that his anger has ceased here, that peace is now being offered. God is is faithful to use heavenly signs as assurance for his people in other times as well. God puts the rainbow in the clouds. I'm not going to do this anymore. God gives the stars, which were already in, in, in the created order, but God directs Abraham's attention to the stars and says, your children will be as numerous as the stars. Your children will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. You know, as even as I was studying, I was thinking, what, a, what, a, what an encouraging thing for us, again, going back to those dry spells, those times when we feel like uh, God is not, actively involved in our life what an encouragement for us to be able to look to the skies and say i'm not the only christian i'm not the only believer the stars represent the others that have gone before me the cloud of witnesses 
that are in heaven waiting for the same thing that I am for Jesus to come back. God uses the signs in the heavens as a means of encouragement in other places as well. He uses the rainbow, probably the first time the rainbow has been seen. Um, if, if what we're thinking in terms of how the earth was composed before the flood, possibly the first time that Noah sees this rainbow, um, and it's communicating to him the assurance that what God has said will happen. Some of the features of the covenant that we've already described, the capital punishment, uh, the meat eating that's now available, meat Eating continues in the New Testament with 1 Timothy 4. Uh, Paul warns about people that would tell you uh, that, that uh, you should refrain from eating meat for sinful reasons. Luke 24, Jesus is eating meat after the resurrection. That's an encouragement, too, as we look forward to the resurrection, that maybe eating is still a part of it, that we get to enjoy God's good creation. There's no blood to be eaten, though. And, and I'll be honest, like I'm not as educated on other things. And so as we were sitting, Lauren and I had a Longhorn gift card. So we're sitting last night getting ready to eat, and I like my steak medium rare, you know? Like, I like it what I would term bloody. And and so I'm getting ready to order, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can. Like, am I allowed to? And so, and so I, I did look it up. And so none of us, I believe, are guilty of this because actually when you have a more rare steak, it's not blood that's coming out. It's water mixed with the myoglobin protein that gives it the red meat feature. You may have already known this. But now I know it and I can feel good that even in studying this, we're still okay to eat meat the way that we like to eat it because in the slaughtering process, the blood is being removed. So nobody panic when we read this part. Um, but in the book of Acts, even this portion is reiterated in Acts chapter um, 15, 19 through 20. Um, when they're trying to decide what to impose upon the Gentiles, this is something they communicate to the Gentiles, that eating of the blood of animals is not okay. It goes back to what happens here uh, with Noah and the covenant. That part may not be relevant to you like it was for me, but just to kind of clear the air there. Um, God's previous workings give us confidence for his future workings. Jot down these scriptures if you want to. We don't have time to look at them, but Isaiah 54, 7 through 10. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 26. Isaiah 54, 7 through 10. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 26. In both of these passages, uh, God references the covenant to make sure that the day and night continue as reason for why his people should trust future promises. He says, if, if, if you break this promise, then I break my other promises. But because I'm keeping this promise, I also keep my future promises. So Isaiah 54, 7 through 10, Jeremiah 33, 19 through 26 may offer encouragement to you as well. I think it's important to note, too, that God preemptively makes promises based on man's anticipated fears. God makes these promises before Noah ever expresses some of these fears. God knows that Noah is sensitive to his sin. And I'm sure God knew that Noah was wondering, will a future flood be our fate as well? So God, in all his sovereign wisdom, says, you know what? If I was Noah, this is what I would be scared about. So let me go ahead and assure Noah that he doesn't have to be scared about these things. We don't have any indication that Noah says, God, will this happen again? God, what about our sin? All of it comes from God. It's initiated by God. God's promise also is based on his own faithfulness and not man's performance. That's important to note as well, too. God doesn't say, as long as you do this, Noah and his descendants, then I will do this. He says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it knowing, verse 21 of chapter 8, knowing that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He acknowledges that man is going to continue to fail, that God, is, God acknowledges that man is going to continue to sin after the flood. 
This is all in his grace. The flood did not fix man's sin. Man continues to sin after the flood, but God says, I'm making this covenant knowing that you're going to fail because I'm a gracious God. It's a reminder of original sin for us, the personal responsibility versus the product of an environment. It's a reminder to us that even when sin is cut off from us, when we have no access to it, that if our hearts are not fixed, we will return to that sin. We will find ways to get to that sin. When I've counseled people that are addicted to something, one of the first things that we do is we try to cut off any access to the object or thing they are addicted to. But if that was the only need, if that was the only part of the solution that was needed, that would be easy. But what we find is that when you've cut off all the normal access to those things, the person who's addicted to something will then create new ways to find it and get access to it. It's a sign that even cutting it off doesn't cleanse the heart. That even forbidding it through human government, making laws that say certain things are not okay, mankind will find ways to access those sinful desires and that evil intent. Changed hearts are necessary. Changed hearts are necessary. The heart has to be fixed. And what's encouraging is that when a renewed heart is in the presence of sinful opportunity, the new heart can produce good rather than sin. So let's say someone is struggling with specific uh, purity issues, and so we have to cut them off from their phone, their TV, their computer. The indication isn't that for the rest of your life you can never have access to things, these things because you're not a good steward of them. The intent is that when your heart is changed, you can use things that would be potentially sinful in the wrong hands, but in the hands of a renewed heart can be used for good purposes. When, when a heart is changed and cleansed, it can be in the presence of opportunity for sin and not choose to sin. Instead, it can choose to use things for God's glory. And this points us to the need for this new covenant, because in all that God lays out here, mankind fails. Mankind fails. What's assuring to us is that God obligates himself to do things here. And while we can never, as the creation demand that God do things that we want him to do, we do have the right to hold God to what he has obligated himself to do. He's obligated himself to remember us, to work good for us, and to hold himself to this covenant. And so the assurance to us as believers is that God never promises beyond what he can guarantee. He never promises beyond what he can guarantee. That's not true for us, right? Mark 14, Peter says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. I promise I'll never do it. Anytime somebody tells me the never word, I, I typically discount it right away. I'm like, you can't guarantee me that. You can't guarantee me that you'll never do it. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Points to a greater covenant because Noah can't stand there and say, God will never, our family will never let us go back to what it was like before the flood. Points to a greater covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and then Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. We don't have time to read through all this. Our time's getting away from us. But those two passages communicate to us that a greater covenant is available in the New Testament. Hebrews 8, 7. Or if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The new covenant addresses the heart. The old covenant addressed physical life. Everything that God communicates with Noah here is based on their physical life in the new world. The covenant that's given to Moses at Sinai, it's a spiritual covenant, but it addresses a, a lot of the outward things that they're to do, the, the, the commands and standards that God has. 
We learn in the New Testament that law communicates sin because God lays it out and says, this is my standard. God's people can't keep the standard. What happens in the new covenant, according to Jeremiah, is that God works on the heart. The heart is changed, which is what makes the new covenant so special. Everything that we've seen today points to this greater covenant because as faithful as God is in what he communicates here, man is unfaithful. Noah and his family produce sin. They produce sinful offspring, sinful offspring that rebel against God. Our application for us this morning, and we'll wrap up with this, our application We must remember God plans. We must remember that God plans to invade our normal lives once again. We must remember that God plans to invade our normal lives once again. In Matthew 24, 2 Peter 3, we're reminded that just in the days of Noah, as they were being given to marriage, taking in marriage, doing the normal things of life, that the flood interceded and invaded, that God stepped in in the midst of normal routines and brought judgment upon the earth. Peter says people today will deliberately forget that fact, and they will deliberately ignore the warnings. And so we miss the major point of this story of Noah if we don't let it draw our attention to the coming judgment in the future. That as we look into the past and we see Noah and how his family weathered this judgment and came out of it on the other side, it points us to the fact that one day again, judgment is coming. And the only way that we get carried through it and come to the other side is by being in Christ, responding to the gospel that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as our sacrifice. It's a sweet aroma to God. He accepts it. And we can now be counted righteous based on Jesus Christ's work. That's the covenant that we enjoy today. That's the covenant that we celebrate today, that those who are obedient to the gospel enter into eternity through faith. God will judge the wicked once again with a catastrophic judgment in order to start life over with a worshiping community. That community will be different, though. It won't be one family starting everything over. It'll be Christians that number the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore that come together for eternity and worship without the threat of sin and death. I'm thankful that I'll be there. My desire is that you're there as well. We we weather the storms of life today, the dry seasons at times in our spiritual life today, knowing that God remembers us and knowing that one day, if we were pinning this out again and writing it, that God will remember his people and Jesus Christ will be sent in all his glory to come and collect, to come and collect his people and usher us into eternity. I wanted us to close today um, by looking at some of the never promises of God. I'm going to post these on the city for you because I think these are really encouraging. I told you that when a human tells me never, I discount it. But there's so many times in scripture when God says that he will never do something never flood the earth again, never forsake his people. And they're encouraging promises. As much as we enjoy the promises of what God will do, we can also enjoy the promises of what God will never do. And I want to post those for you this week so that you can reflect on those. They were encouraging to me as I was kind of looking those up and and reflecting on what God says he will never do. Um, And so I want those to encourage you uh, this week as well. Let's pray together. Father, we We thank you for our time in the word this morning. I know we covered a lot today, but Father, I pray that 
as we prepare to leave, that these five truths would really ring true in our minds. As we've expounded upon them, help us to come back to the simplicity of them as well. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who remembers his people. You're not a God who forgets. You're a God who promises. And then when the timing is right, you act on those promises and you get back involved in the lives of your people in an active way where we can see you moving. We thank you that you're a God who remembers. Help us to be people that remember you. Because we know that we're prone to forget, we're prone to wander, we're prone to get caught up in our own busy schedules and our own agendas. And, and it's very easy for us to go potentially days, weeks, without reflecting upon you, without spending time with you. And so, Father, help us to be people that remember our Creator. Help our dads, help our husbands to be men who draw our families to remember you as their creator. Help us to follow the example of Noah and Lamech and Methuselah, Enos, others who who were faithful to gather their families around the worship of you. Father, help us to be reminded, even as we hear the rains coming down around us right now, this post-flood world that's tarnished by sin and death, God, God, as as our life expectancy has dwindled, God, help us to be reminded that you're still in control of everything that's going on outside. That you're in control of our circumstances. You're in control of the elements. That all that we see around us submits to your authority. Father, I pray that we will be a people that values human life. And that we will embrace our responsibility to grow and expand your glory. God, we thank you once again for the children that are being produced through our church. Father, I pray that they will be raised in a way where they respond to you. Father, I thank you for those that are intentionally pouring themselves into others that are not their physical children and yet are increasing life through their discipleship. Father, I thank you for the goals that you've set before our church, and I pray that as we seek to accomplish those things through your power, that we will expand life. And Father, ultimately, we thank you for the promises that you make, the promises that you keep. Father, I pray that they would encourage us as we hold fast to them. As we leave today, and I know we all leave and go back to different contexts where where some of us are on spiritual highs right now and others are on spiritual lows. God, I pray that we would be reminded that you remember us, that you've promised things to us, and that you will fulfill those promises. Father, we're thankful for the never things that you do. Father, we're thankful that you never forsake us, just like you never forsaked Noah and his family, even in the midst of being in the ark for a year. God, we're thankful that you never forsake them, you never forsake us. God, I pray that we'd be encouraged by that as we leave today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.